tonight if you turn your Bibles to the fourth chapter. We'll finish it up tonight. The fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. We'll pick up in verse 9. And a study that I've entitled, Toss Those Crowns. And I want to give you a little preview because Jesus gave us a little preview. Before you get there, I'll just read it to you. And it's found in Matthew's Gospel in the 19th chapter, the 28th verse. And you remember the context here. Uh, the disciples were kind of talking a few things over. And the disciples heard they were, you know, kind of, you know, haggling over this thing. Who can be saved? And Peter answers this, this question. He says, look, we've left everything we have and we followed you. And therefore, tell us what we're going to get. That's found there in chapter 19 and verse 27. In verse 28, the answer comes. And so Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when you get your new body fit for heaven, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes. Look, guys, you're going to get heaven as your reward. Amen. Amen? And so we pick up tonight in the heavenly scene that Jesus was referring to here in Revelation chapter 4. Let's pray. Father God, we've come to worship you. Lord, the King of heaven on his throne. And we ask tonight that you would make your word Lord, just an astounding truth to us. We pray that you'd speak from heaven, that your voice we would hear. Lord, that your spirit would instruct us in righteousness. Lord, teach us how we should walk, that we might always be pleasing to you. And so, God, we give you this time and pray now that you would speak to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Verse 9 here in Revelation chapter 4. And so whenever the living creatures, and remember we referred to them last time that we were together, these are the cherubim. They're probably uh, and angels, if you want to look at it that way, more than likely uh, of those angelic class that we call cherubim or seraphim, but most likely cherubim who give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever and ever. And so as these heavenly beings begin their praise as they begin to worship before the throne. The 24 elders fall down before him, it says in verse 10, who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And it's very important that you realize that these repetitions are are not for boredom. They're for emphasis. They're not being repeated because the authors didn't know what to write and needed to fill in some space. Therefore, absolute emphasis. The one who lives forever and ever. The one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. The one who was in the beginning with God and the one who was God. Speaking of the majesty and the glory of the King of Kings and of the Lord of Lords. And cast their crowns down before the throne, saying, So here's this heavenly scene. When the angels begin this cycle of praise, crying out to God, You alone are worthy, O God. You alone are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor 
and power. And notice why. For you created all things. The angels were created beings. You created all things. You created us. You created the saints. You created the heavens. You created the stars. You created the galaxies. You created earth and everything on it. All that has been created was created by Him and for Him and through Him. And without Him was nothing created that was created. Amen? Amen. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. And so these amazing beings begin this worship service, and that's exactly what it is. And remember the scene now? There's 24 elders. They represent the Old Testament saints. They represent the New Testament apostles. John is getting a preview now of what will happen, because remember Jesus said in the answer to Peter's question, what's in it for us? He said, you're going to get a throne in heaven. And he's speaking to the disciples. He's saying to them, look, here's what's going to happen. And when you get there, the Bible tells us much about that event. And so in this heavenly scene, the purpose for these four living creatures to worship the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Great I Am. And they acknowledge that this God that they're worshiping is Elohim. The triune one, the plural one, the one who is El, and he is also plural. He is God. Very important that you realize what's being said. Because if you miss who they're speaking about, you can begin to think that maybe there's three gods, not one God and three persons. And so he immediately, the scene, they fall on their knees. They're on their face before the the throne of God. And notice what they're giving as their act of worship. Their crowns. And we, of course, have already looked at those crowns. We've seen already the crown that will come to every believer for the work done in this body. Speaking of an event that one day uh, we're going to be privileged to be a part of. And notice this isn't a forced worship. This is a deliberate act of will. This is humility at its finest. You alone are worthy of that praise. You alone are worthy of that honor. You alone have the power to create. And so the scene that we see is nothing other than the Bema seat at which all believers one day will stand. That victor seat. And The word that's used here to worship is the most common word that's used in the Greek translation of the New Testament. It's the the Greek word proskuneo. And as as they bow down, it literally means to kiss toward, bow down. It's a sign of 
absolute abject worship. There is no one else in the room, and you alone are the object of that worship, Lord. The Hebrew word shakah is much the same meaning. And so as they gather before the throne, remember that there's going to be an event that precedes this because the church is now home in heaven. We've looked at it briefly. The church is gone. The rapture has happened. The saints are there, represented by these 24 elders, all the Old Testament saints, the New Testament believers. And remember there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we who are alive and remain, it says in verse 17, uh, at that time we'll be caught up together with them and meet the Lord in the air. And there's something that's going to happen at that time. And that word there in 1 Thessalonians, meet, is a royal greeting. There's a gigantic party that's going to be going on in heaven uh, as we meet the Lord. He's going to be glad to see us. He's going to be welcoming us home. And at that time, as 1 John says, we will see him as he is. Right now we see him in a, in a mirror dimly, amen? We, we get a glimpse of the Lord. But that day we're going to stand before him in heaven, before the throne of God. These elders gathered around in this heavenly scene, and what a glorious meeting that is going to be. Anybody else looking forward to your glorified body? Amen. I, I woke up this morning, I'm like, oh Lord, the earthly tent is groaning. It wants to be released. But that day, all things being made new and ushered into that glorious heavenly scene. It's going to be a day of reckoning, though, because we're told where we're going to be. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it, it gives us a picture of what's going to happen. And, and it begins there in verse 6, and it says this, So we're always confident that knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Amen? So while we're here, we're absent from the Lord. The Lord is in heaven. He's on his throne. He's making intercession for you and I tonight. But we walk by faith and not by sight, and we're confident, yes, well pleased. It goes on there in 2 Corinthians 5 to say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So by the time we finally make that journey, we make that leap, maybe you leave here tonight and, and you have your last evening on earth. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Hallelujah. You can count on it. You're going to get to see the Lord face to face. You're going to wake up in His likeness. And therefore we make it our aim, it says in verse 9, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. We want to be obedient to the things that God's called us to do. One of the joys of obedience on this earth is to develop an attitude that says, Lord, I'd love to have something to throw at your feet when I get there. I'd love to have, a, I would be delighted to have a stack of crowns that I can put at the feet of Jesus. And it goes on in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to say, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, and that two-word phrase, judgment seat, is a single Greek word. It is bima. It's the seat uh, that would normally be the place to where the victors in the Olympic Games would stand. The Greek Games would stand. It's where they would stand to receive the reward for having run well. One day, 
every last one of you, I, all believers, will stand and give an account for the things done in this body. And for some people, Scripture reminds us, it will be as if by fire we will get in. And for others, there's going to be a serious reward ceremony. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one might receive those things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. And I want to be very careful here. This is not whether you're saved or not. You're there. You made it. Some of you may just squeak in. I pray that's not the case. There's still time for there to be rewards given. But you are going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the things you've done with what you've been given while you've been on this earth. And I pray that there's much fruit that abounds to our account. For some it will be real good and for some it will be bad. But it's not to test whether you will be able to make it into the kingdom. That's already decided before you ever leave this earth. For it is appointed unto man one time to die and then judgment, your Bible tells you. And so someday you're going to step out of time, which God created, into eternity. And you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, For we're fellow workers with God in God's field, and you're his building. And it goes on to say, by the time you get to verse 13, there in 1 Corinthians 3, that each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, be revealed by fire, and that fire will test each one's work. You see, there's going to be a day when you stand before the Lord and give an account. At that day, these elders received some crowns and the next thing that you see is there's only one worthy in heaven to wear any kind of crown even a victor's crown and they put those feet those crowns at the feet of Jesus Romans 14 verse 10 says why do you judge your brother why do you show contempt for your brother for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ again the Bema seat. For it is written there in Isaiah 45, verse 23, Paul quoting there from his favorite book, the book of Isaiah. For as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. You see, we're getting a preview of that day. What a glorious day it's going to be for so many. You know, as I thought about this this afternoon I was actually kind of taking a little stock in my my own life my own experience and there was a point in time when I can honestly say I, I don't think there would have been much to put at the feet of Jesus in my life I hope I get a little wreath of some you know maybe some oak leaves or something I don't know but I know this I want to see us as the body of Christ. I want to see us as this church have much to put at the feet of Jesus. That's why we have missionaries in New York. That's why the team just got back from Samoa. That's why we're building that church in India. One of the reasons that we do what we do is to bring 
glory and honor and praise to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords. Yes, we want to be engaged in seeing people come to Christ. But our King is worthy of honor. And one of the best ways we can show Him that we love Him is by doing, being doers of the Word, not just hearers only. And so we're going to stand. There are two future judgments, and I want to briefly just highlight these because people often get them confused, and this is where people go wrong. The judgment seat of Christ, you, you just simply can't confuse it with the great white throne judgment that's coming. By the time we get to the end of this book, there is another judgment, and that judgment is one that if you're here tonight, let me just encourage you, you do not want to make it to that judgment. Because there's only one outcome at the great white throne, depart, for I have never known you. And so those two judgments being spoken of very differently in Scripture. The judgment seat of Christ is only for believers. The great white throne judgment there in Revelation 20 is specifically for unbelievers. This judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, happens directly after the rapture of the church. The church is in home, this worship service ensues, and during the worship service, these crowns are given, and the elders begin the whole service by saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb to receive all glory and honor and praise. And they take their crowns off and say, they're yours, Jesus, any good thing belongs to you. There are rewards for service. But after the thousand-year reign, when the body of Christ comes back from heaven with the King of kings, with the Lord of lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, once the enemy is defeated, he's cast into the pit, and at the time that that pit is opened, there will be another judgment, and that judgment is eternal, and that judgment is only for those who will be lost. You don't want to be there at that judgment. This picture as it unfolds before us is, is this amazing transformation that occurs. Those crowns that come to us, our new heavenly bodies are not those reconstituted. You know, sometimes I, I kind of laugh at, at what people think, and not because I haven't thought those things myself, but we're so incapable of understanding what's going to happen when we finally get to heaven. We just can't know. These little finite minds of ours are incapable of understanding the glories of heaven. But I know this. Scripture tells us that when we get there, 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we're now children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when we see Him, we shall be like Him. Amen? He, he, amen. I don't know about you, but I'd kind of like to be a lot like Jesus. Now, I'm thankful for the earthly tent that I have. It served me well. But I can tell you this. It is getting crusty. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 15 also reminds us in verse 38, but God gives it a body that he pleases each one to each seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. And he goes on to say in verse 49, and as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the heavenly image of the heavenly man. Amen? That's a type of body. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like. People will ask me, you know, are we going to glow in the dark? You know, are we going to look like, you know, I don't know. But I know this. It's going to be suited for heaven. Can't wait to see what that looks like, what that feels like. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1 says, And the elders who are among you I exhort 
I'm a fellow elder, elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Amen? It's going to be revealed someday, that glory of God on you, on me. By the time you get to verse 4 there in First Peter 5, it says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. Right now we have all kinds of... You probably have them. Isn't it weird how we keep those things? We just finished our move, and I'm going through these boxes. And I was a fairly athletic person in high school. I did pretty well, played some semi-pro basketball, you know, kind of, and I've still got boxes and boxes and boxes of just awards, you know, and you got this medal for that and a plaque for this and, you know, the presidential medals to where if you actually showed up, you actually got one in the fourth grade. You were alive and warm, you weren't cold and dead, so you got an award, those kind of things. And you have all this, but I, I noticed something interesting. They've been in the box so long, they have faded. They are faded glory. Those certificates that you lived for when you were in the fourth grade now are pretty much meaningless, amen? You know, perfect attendance. But one day you're going to receive a crown that will not fade, but will bear the mark and the glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. That's why he's worthy. You know, sometimes we kind of treat heaven like it, you know, it's just it's so different that we don't get excited about heaven. I'm excited about heaven tonight. I can't wait to go. I, I know, as Paul said, it's better that we stay here. There's work to be done, but I'm ready. My ticket's punched. It's right, I got it in my back pocket. It's like, it says rapture ready on it, and it's got my name. I'm going to show it, you know. It's like, here, I'm going to heaven. Why is he worthy? What a question this is. And I want you to see these things. Here's why he's worthy. First, he's the creator. He's the uncaused cause of everything else. Amen? By him and through him were all things that were created, created. Your, your Bible is rife with the information that tells us who the creator is. And I want to dig into this in a little bit. But that glory is the manifestation, the evidence of his actions. It's who he is. He alone can do these things. Secondly, by your will they exist. When you think about the entire universe, the only reason the whole universe exists is because God willed it into existence and spoke it so. So everything is his. He caused it to come to pass, he spoke it into existence, and he alone preserves what he made. Scientists, even to this very moment, are trying to figure out why the universe is the way it is. They, they cannot figure out for the life of them why there is so much order in what should be immense chaos. They have no reasoning for it. They're looking for dark matter. They're looking for dark energy. They cannot explain the mass that's missing in our universe. When you look at the universe, it should not exist because it does not have enough gravitational force and attraction to keep the whole thing together. There's too much empty space, so there's got to be something else out there holding it together. I can tell you who it is. His name's Jesus. He alone preserves everything. And a third foundational thing 
everything was created. It's not random chance processes. It was not some cataclysmic explosion of a thing called a singularity, the seed of a universe, some 13.7 billion years ago, this tiny little seed of mass that somehow exploded and created all of the order that we see in the entire universe, which, by the way, is continually expanding. And yet somehow in its expansion, in that explosion, it creates order out of chaos automatically. Drive your car into a tree and see how much order you get out of that chaos. (laughs) Don't do that. He alone created everything. And so these elders give the reason for their praise. By your will they exist. You created them. You're the source of everything. No wonder they're encouraging the elders to deposit all that they have before the throne of grace. It's exactly what we'd all do. And what are you going to do when you get to heaven? Some people, when they look at this passage, they get a little bit confused because it's often called the Creator's Song. And I'll simply give you a a verse that you can point to, and we're going to be looking at a few things tonight. But as you look at this passage, it's found there in the very uh, beginning of John. It's the very first thing that we hear from John about Jesus himself. Very creative, very instructive, very magnificent verse. And it declares to us something that is absolutely put into play in our passage tonight. For in the beginning was the Word. We know who the Word is. The Word became flesh by the time you get to verse 14 and dwelt among us. Amen? So the Word being spoken of is Jesus in verse 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it says in verse 1 of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Now I want you to notice something here because it's very clear that there's more than one person. And it's also very clear that more than one person is the triune God. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him and without Him, that's the Word, Jesus, was not anything made that was made. And so who we have in view here in this passage is none other than the Creator, Jesus, the Christ, God's only begotten Son, part of that triune Godhead, the Trinity, the one God who exists in three persons, Elohim who dwells outside of space, time, outside of matter, And the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those things that is so hotly debated and so taught against in so many, especially in cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Latter-day Saints. They believe in a tri, in essence, tritheism, three gods. And those gods are lesser. And let me give you a little example of how they do that. If you happen to talk to a Jehovah's Witness, if they come to your door, they're going to bring with them uh, their own Bible, it's called the New World Translation. You may have seen one. 
And if you read this passage here in, in John's Gospel, the first vor- verse, it says in their Bible something slightly different. And it's only a tiny little difference unless you realize exactly what they're saying. It says there in the New World Translation, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. It's just a tiny word. You'll also notice, if you look at it, that it has no capital G on God. Because they do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. If Jesus Christ is not God, then you have the wrong Jesus. Exactly what Paul wrote in the second letter to the church at Corinth and warned us against in chapter 11, don't let anybody preach to you another Jesus. Because if Jesus isn't God, he cannot die for your sins. And your sins remain. You see, to the Jehovah's Witness, what they believe is, and they have altered the text, there is no supportive evidence nor text to to state that that is actually in the original text. It says, in fact, that Jesus was God. And as they use that little g, if you go to the NASB, if you go to the NIV, the King James, the New King James, the New English Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New Living Translation, you're going to get exactly what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the reason that that's important is it flies in the face of Jesus being God and God existing in three persons. And so important is that if you don't get this, then who's sitting on the throne? Is it God the Father? You see, if it's God the Father and not God the Son and not God the Holy Spirit, all three in one God, then we have a huge problem with our Bible tonight. Because Scripture tells us that the Creator is Jesus. And so if it's only Elohim which, by the way, is also a triune plural. El is God, singular. Eloah is God, dual, or in two places, two persons. Elohim is basically three or more. So Elohim sitting on the throne means that there can be God in three persons. The New World Translation is incorrect, and it's incorrect for several reasons. First of which is there's no textual evidence to support it. But more than that, your Bible specifically teaches Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Your Bible teaches monotheism. There's one God. So there better only be one God and he better exist in three persons or your Bible's not true. There are multiple versions of your text that you can point to. Remember Isaiah 44 verse 6 says, I am the first and the last and there is no God besides me. You, you see, it's, it's clear that there's one but that one exists in three persons. And so let me walk you through this very carefully. Obviously, Father God is God. Amen? 2,214 times in your English Bible, you're going to find the word God. It's referencing the supreme being. That's generally who we call Father God. I don't think anybody has a problem with that. In John 1.1, notice that here the Son is also called God. 
So the Son has to also be God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking unto the blessed hope, the appearing of our, of gl- in glory of our great God and Savior, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So our great God and our Savior is also Jesus. The Holy Spirit is also called God. And in fact, the Holy Spirit is not just a, a force. It's not like Yoda's hand. The Holy Spirit is also a person. That Holy Spirit, is, the Holy Spirit is also God. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. So the Holy Spirit is also called God in your Bible. And so the answer is actually simple, though we cannot explain it all that well. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are all three the one God. And so on the throne is Elohim. All three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when the elders are giving homage, paying glory and honor and praise to the Creator... We know, because your Bible tells us there in Colossians, that Jesus Christ is the Creator. That He is the One. He's the Majestic One. He is the One through whom all things were created that were created. And so when you look at those passages, you have to simply acknowledge that though we cannot explain it in a human sense and how God can be three completely unique entities and yet at the same time absolutely one God that is what our Bible teaches so that three in one is also Jesus and so the creator is on the throne the Bible teaches that uniplural God if you will that triune God that trinity if you will And the Creator is not Mother Earth, as pagan pantheists uh, try and help us to understand. Not a cosmic consciousness, as so many believe today, that in fact there's just one great giant force, and ultimately we're all part of it, and it kind of self-exists. It also is not, and this is the most unfortunate part of it, if the world can create itself, then there's no Creator, amen? Amen. If we just got here because something a long time ago exploded and got very ordered out of all that chaos, then there is no God, and we should just all go home. But I can tell you this, there isn't a single person in here that if I stuck a firecracker in a Coke can next to you, you're going to hang on to it. The reason being it's going to explode, and it's going to cause chaos, and that chaos is going to tear through your fingers. And if you think that can happen on a galactic level and produce some kind of order, you are nutte. That's French for out of your head. <laughs> and I, I realize there are astrophysicists all over the world that are trying to figure out how all this stuff gets glued together, but my Bible says that in him all things consist, and I take it at its word. I may not be able to explain it all to you, but I can tell you there's enough problems with, with even theistic evolution, some guided process whereby God just simply, you know, well, I'm going to kind of hang out and fiddle with these things. 
There's no way that that could possibly happen because then he's not creating it for purpose. He's not creating it with will. He's just simply guiding all these random chance processes a little bit. Every once in a while he has something that he kind of cares for like people. That's crazy. That, that makes him capricious. That makes him unorganized. You look at the world, it's very organized. And so the creator is none other than our King Jesus. And certainly among those verses which speak that the loudest, there is First John chapter 1, the first three verses. And God became man and dwelt among us. Amen? God in human flesh. And at the heart of all this, this is the reason why Muslims, this is the reason why Jewish people do not want to admit that Jesus is God. Because if Jesus is God, then he is in fact the Savior of the world. If you can challenge the fact that Jesus is God, as do Mormons, as do Jehovah's Witnesses, as do Muslims, he's just a prophet to the Muslim people. That's all he is. He's just a prophet. One of many. He's a good one. But he's a prophet. A prophet cannot die for your sins. Only God could die. He had to be a perfect sacrifice for your life. That's who's on the throne. No wonder they're putting their crowns at his feet. That word became flesh. Ultimately died a death. Therefore, that's why Philippians tells us that God highly exalted him. He became a man and didn't consider it robbery even to die the death of the cross. That's the word of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't that what the gospel's about? That God became man and he died on Calvary's cross that we might have eternal life. That's what separates biblical Christianity from all other world religions, by the way. That is the one defining factor in what we believe. There are a lot of people that believe there's a supreme being. There are many people who believe there are many gods. But there's only one group on this earth that believes that God became man, wrapped in humanity. And that humanity's flesh was tested in all ways that we are and yet was without sin. And when he died on Calvary's cross, he died perfect, without sin. And yet God made him sin for us. No wonder the Creator did that for you. The Creator did that for me. No wonder they're taking their crowns off and putting them at the feet of Jesus. He is, in fact, the God that actually created them. Colossians tells us he's the image of the invisible God. Ephesians chapter 3 tells us he created all things. And it was the one who created us that also died for us. No wonder they praised him. You see, each of those persons of the Godhead uniquely, wonderfully, a part of God's eternal plan, but also God. It was by Christ that the Father, moving by the power of the Spirit, created this wonderful tri-universe. You realize that even the universe itself is a picture of the Trinity. It is made of space, time and matter and nothing else that's it and so God even imprinted the universe that we live in 
the universe that is our home with the triunity. It's only one universe, amen? People talk about, well, there's 16 of them or whatever there is now. It started out with one, and then there became two, and then four, and now there's the multiverse, you know. Your Bible says the God that dwells outside of space and time created everything that there is, and he created it for a purpose. And that purpose was that it might glorify him. A creation is not a process. You know, sometimes I, I, I get in some interesting conversations with people and to wrap this up tonight this this central thought on why there is this worship service going on in heaven as when you think about you when I think about me when I think about us when I look at the creation when I look at the universe when I when I just simply uh, go out and look at a sunset now I don't know how many of you have any artistic talent I have zero I mean I literally have no artistic talent None. So you want me to build you something? I'm pretty good at that. But artistic, I have no idea. When people say, well, it's kind of this light shade of pinkies, purple issue, I don't get it. It doesn't register to me. So when I see God paint a sunset and he redoes that every single evening over a horizon, I look at it and then I, I watch people try and replicate that on a piece of paper and I go, man, you guys are lame. That is really terrible. And yet God just, with the remnants of the day, paints what we can barely imagine in our mind. Think of what he does by his will. Forcibly by his will, he just says, universe be, and it was. And so when you look at the creation, it's not a process. It's altogether miraculous. And when you look at what was said in the beginning is, is all you need to know, really. The, the first book of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The word used there for God is Elohim. So it's all three persons of the Godhead. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And the Spirit hovered over the waters, and you know the story. And so by the time this worship service ensues in heaven... David would have written about it some 3,000 years earlier. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, Psalm 33 declares. And all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. I'm really kind of tired of watching the body of Christ capitulate and go so far as to say, well, you know, I kind of sort of believe in Jesus but I don't really believe there's a creator. I think the world got here by evolution. You can't have it both ways. You either believe there's a creator God or you don't believe there's a savior either. You can't separate the two. And we can debate all day long on how that creator took, how long it took for that creator to create. I happen to believe he could have done it in a nanosecond if he wanted to. I believe that he created the universe and everything that we now know as the universe in six literal days and then rested. When he did that, we can debate that later. I happen to believe he did it a very short period of time ago. It's not going to get you into heaven. But you have to believe that the God that died for your sin is also the God that created you. 
Otherwise, you got the wrong Jesus. Amen? Psalm 148 says, Praise Him, sun and moon and stars. Praise Him, all you stars of light. Praise Him, ye heaven of heavens and waters. Let Him praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. And the words that are used in the creation story are staggering in their beauty. And it's the reason this worship service is going on in heaven, here in the book of Revelation. Because it's something that's never happened before, and it hasn't happened since. God uses a word here in the beginning, God created. That word created is the Hebrew word bara. It means to create from nothing. Now, I don't know whether you understand this or not, or whether it comes to your mind clearly or not, but to create something out of nothing is not to take something that already exists and make it into something else. It's to take nothing and make something out of it. I'm pretty sure no one in here can do that. I could be wrong. I'm also sure that no matter how much time you add to nothing, you're still going to get nothing. Could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure on that. And the reason I believe that is basic physics. Nothing can be created or destroyed. It's one of Newton's laws. That all things tend towards decay. That's the second law of thermodynamics. That all matter and all energy is winding down. It's not winding up. It's going down. Park your car near the beach. You'll see it in operation. It'll just fall apart right there before your eyes. All things tend towards decay. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There are three acts of what we like to call fiat creation or creation by divine decree and when you think about those things they're, they're only, it only took three of them and so as God creates what he does is he takes nothing and makes something in order to do that you cannot be part of the nothing you have to be outside of the nothing so what does God do in the very first sentence in your Bible in the beginning God created time it was marked at that point in time In the beginning, God says, from this point forward, there is. And what does he do to do that? He simply speaks it into existence. He doesn't go running around the universe going, oh no, I was going to create something, what do I make it out of? From nothing, he created everything that is. He does that three times. Creates the great whales, all living creatures. He creates man in his own image. Three times, he creates And in those three times, he basically makes the general components of everything else. And from there on, if you read your creation account, you can go home and do that later tonight. Maybe tomorrow, read Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, chapter 3. You go through the creation account there in Genesis chapter 1. You're going to see that God creates the basic component parts of the entire universe. And then he makes or forms. He uses two separate Hebrew words to take what he's already created from nothing, bara, created the heavens, the earth, he creates all of the elements, he creates space, he creates time, he creates all matter, in other words. The continuum that we call the universe that we live in, he creates space, time, and matter. And from space, time, and matter, he then creates two more separate entities, one living beings, and then man. Those are unique in creation. 
And then from that, he makes or made from those things the firmament. He makes the two great lights. He doesn't have to do any creation of light because he himself is light. Amen? He just spoke light. Light is. And there it is. I am. He makes the stars. He goes on. He uses the Hebrew word asa or yastar. And he simply says, I, look, I'm going to take all these other things and I'm going to make everything else. I'll create these out of nothing. And what I made out of nothing, I will now form into all the other things. Now, we're not told how he did that. And people debate, well, you know, nobody can. Well, God can. He dwells outside of space and time. And so that very good God, remember Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he had made. And he said, it is very good. No wonder they're taking their crowns and throwing them at the feet of the Creator. Heaven itself. God formed man. God took man from the dust of the earth. Creates the fowls of the air. And so this hymn of praise is to the one who created and made everything that's worshiping him now. I don't know how many of you have had an opportunity to walk through a a high-tech factory of any kind. I remember when I was, I was young, one of the very few times I can remember my dad taking me to work. He worked for General Dynamics. He was a plant manager for an aircraft plant down in San Diego, Plant 19, which has made all kinds of military aircraft. But I remember walking through all these huge jigs and fixtures and things that were mocked up to make these gigantic empanages, the tail-end section of aircraft. And I'm, I'm walking through, I'm just looking at man. These guys must really be smart. You know, it was before they aligned everything with lasers and they had all these, you know, measuring devices. And, and I remember my dad telling me, yeah, that, that part over there is accurate to within one ten-thousandth of an inch. And I'm sitting there thinking, one ten-thousandth of an inch. Okay, this is an inch. One ten, that's a small thing. If you were to look up the part list on a Boeing 747. There's a little over 5 million parts to that aircraft. Child's play to God. Child's play. Probably some of you in here long enough have been on this earth like I to remember we used to get up so early in the morning to watch the missile launches. The Mercury and the Gemini and then finally the Apollo launches, and then I remember Apollo 13, and those they're trapped in space, and how are we going to get those astronauts home? My uncle was at the Space Center in Houston. He was one of the engineers that was working out the problems on that rebreather system. He was one of the guys that actually figured out what to put together to be able to scrub the air to get them back. Pretty amazing stuff. They're a quarter million miles from home. That's a long way. You're not getting there in a Prius. (laughs) But I remember, it's like, man, 
And yet from nothing, Jesus created the entire universe. No wonder they're casting their crowns at his feet. All of that creative force and energy. That's why they're praising him. That's why they're singing songs. That's why they're shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Do you think of him as the one who is to come tonight? Because he's coming back. And he's coming for you. Amen? That's why we should praise him. Just as Colossians says, for all things, there in verse 16, Colossians chapter 1, for all things were created by him and for him. For him. And by him all things are held together. They literally have their being. For in him all things consist. No wonder they're praising. I know how we should praise him too. So the next time you're tempted to think maybe God doesn't love you, he created you. And he created you for a purpose. And he loves you so much that Jesus himself, the one who created you, forfeited his life on Calvary's cross that you might have eternity with him. I'm going to call the worship team back up and I'm going to call the prayer team forward. And as they come, maybe you're here tonight. First time you ever heard of this creator dude. Maybe you bought the lie that somehow if you just give enough billions of years to nothing, something will happen. I did. I believed that lie in college. I absolutely believed that lie because some bald dude, badly dressed, told me so. I believed it. You know, the funny thing is, I actually remember asking some pretty tough questions. I never did get any answers to them. And now I know why, because I don't have them. People are still asking the same question that we were asking a long time ago. Same questions that Copernicus probably asked when he looked up into the night sky. The same ones that Einstein tried to figure out when he said, you know what, Uh, light seems to travel at a constant speed. Your Bible has the answer. The Creator God created you because He loves you. And He wants to spend eternity with you. And He died on Calvary's cross to prove that. And so if you've never believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never offered up your life tonight, there's going to be people up here up front. And you need to do that before you leave tonight. Because one day you're going to stand before a holy God and you're going to give an account. One day you're going to have to give an answer for what happened while you were here. And all of our earthly excuses aren't going to do any good because you're going to be asked one question. What did you do? with my son Jesus who died for you the one who created you 
So if that's you, as we close in prayer, as we close in worship, we're going to do what the angels in heaven did. We're going to do what the elders will one day do. We're going to worship. But you can't worship somebody you don't know. It doesn't work that way. And so as we close, I'm going to pray. That's you tonight. You need to come and give your life to Christ. If you've been wandering away from Him, you need to come and get right with Jesus because He loves you. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, as we close this time tonight, Lord, we're not closing our hearts to your Spirit. And God, I want to pray right now if there's even a single person in this room who's never said yes to the Creator's call, to the Savior's call, to the lover of our soul's call, to the Holy Spirit's call upon their life. Lord, I pray right now in this moment as the pastors come forward, as the elders are here, God, they get up from their place, from their seat, just simply come forward and pray that prayer. Lord, your word says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God has been spoken. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved, but at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day we will all bow. And Lord, most of us tonight bow right now. We say Jesus Christ is Lord. Would you save the lost tonight? God, would you bring the wayward back into fellowship? Lord, would you be the keeper of those who maybe are, maybe they're plotting, they're wandering even right now. God, stop those plans. Cause us to repent and turn to you. For you alone, O God, are worthy of our praise. We declare it, we believe it, and we honor you tonight, King Jesus. To you alone do we offer our praise. It's in Christ's name we pray these things, and God's people all said, Amen. Amen.